Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, and I'd be happy to have you join me there in the text we're going to read from Matthew 7. Uh, greeting again to those of you who are watching via live stream. If you are interested in following along with the same notes that uh, we pass out or the order of service that we uh, collect, that people uh, gather when they come, you can find it on our website. The web uh, address is uh, findgracehere.org. If you look under the Listen and Read tab, you'll be able to find the sermon notes and the order of service that we follow uh, if you're interested in doing that. Yesterday uh, was uh, the 21st anniversary of the beginning of my ministry here, so I've been asking you to turn in your Bibles for 21 years. I'm halfway done, and if uh, construction and corona don't kill me, we'll keep going. So... Uh, that was uh, good. It's also good this morning to see uh, Mike and Jenny Guy with us today. They have been in the States for some time, uh, but they are uh, uh, worshiping with us uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, Robbie's here, and uh, Timmy and Ellie are downstairs. Um, we're not supposed to eff effusively welcome people face to face, but you can smile behind your mask and wave to them at the end of the service. It's good to see them. Now, Matthew 7. Let's read what the Lord says, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. At the foundation of this passage, buried underneath a lot of questions we have about how this applies, is one of the most disliked doctrines of all Christianity. Underneath this passage is the, the uh, conviction we have about the judgment of God. We believe that all human beings are accountable, and everyone someday in that great day to come, everyone will stand before God and answer to him for the choices that they have made. Uh, one of the great verses about this, of course, is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You, me, everyone in your family, everyone you know, everyone you follow on social media, everyone you see on television, Everyone who lives in Lancaster County, the state of Pennsylvania, the whole world, everyone who has ever lived will one day stand before God to answer for the choices that they have made. Uh, that is one of the most important things that you can know and think about God. And a lot of people object to this. They think it doesn't sound fair or doesn't sound just. Who does God think he is to subject me to his judgment? I think of a, a, a thought experiment that Francis Schaeffer suggested whenever I think about the judgment of God. He said, Let, what would it be like if God were to evaluate you not on the basis of his standards, but on the basis of your own standards, your standards? He said, 
What if every single person had around their necks a tape recorder? Now, Francis Schaeffer lived in the last century, and a tape recorder was a device that you could use to record yourself before the phone. And if you want to see one someday, you can go to a museum and see a tape. It's called a tape recorder. So imagine that you had a tape recorder hanging around your neck, Francis Schaeffer said, that came on to record you whenever you said the words, you should. Whenever you said to someone else, you gave them advice, you know what you should do? You know what you should do? Well, here's what I think you should do. And if it recorded you during that that recorder, uh, took note of your words. And on the day that you stand before God, God says, I'm not going to judge you by my standards. I'm going to judge you by your standards. Here your standards are. And he hits play. And all of your life advice comes out. Let's compare your life to what you think other people ought to do. How would you fare under that judgment? Would you do better under that judgment or would you do better under the judgment of God? If you feel the weight of that question, then perhaps you're ready to read and walk with me through this passage that contains, you'll recognize, one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. And most people who know it, in fact, like to quote it in King James English because it sounds heavier. Judge not that ye be not judged. Sean Douglas O'Donnell said, it's striking how this verse seems to be only quoted in one context. The only verse at this con- this uh, only context in which this verse seems to be quoted is when followers of Jesus talk about virtues and values. He says, think about it. For example, if you're watching a football game and the coach sends instructions to the team and they make a play and it's a disastrous play, it's the wrong choice and uh, it leads to the loss of the game. If you're watching and you say to your friend sitting there watching, that's terrible that coach made that decision. That's a terrible call. He just signed a multi-million dollar contract. He's not worth a penny. It's terrible. Your friend will not turn to you and say, judge not that she be not judged. Or, think about it, in a couple weeks, uh, you'll have an opportunity to watch one of the presidential debates. And let's imagine one of the candidates gives an answer to a question and, and you say, that's so naive. I can't believe he thinks that. I mean, where are these facts? He's making things up and, and, and this is just not a clear picture of how things in the world work. No one in the room is gonna turn to you and say, judge not that ye be not judged. But if your nephew moves in with his girlfriend and and you talk to your brother about it, there'll be a three-step process. Step one, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Step two, you made some pretty bad decisions when you were a young adult too. I mean, come on, let's cut him some slack. And step three, judge not that ye be not judged. David Kinnaman wrote a book several years ago called Unchristian, and it's about how young adults respond to Christianity. And he said of unbelieving young adults, how they respond and think about Christianity. He said nearly 9 out of 10, uh, 87% of young outsiders say that the term judgmental accurately describes Christianity. Judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. We probably deserve that characterization. Uh, there's, there's some truth in that. But I think I'd also like to push back on it a little bit. 
Uh, it's okay to be judgmental as long as you're judgmental about the right things, right? You can be judgmental about politics, and you can be judgmental about sports, and you can be judgmental about whether J.J. Abrams ruined the Star Wars franchise, and you can even be judgmental about people's personal choices. You can be judgmental about whether someone recycles, and you can be judgmental about whether or not they drink fair trade coffee, but there are certain personal choices that I make that, I, that the only appropriate response in our culture is to say, judge not, that ye be not judged. The other thing I think about when we come to this passage is we live in a world uh, that uh, is characterized by something that's called cancel culture. Cancel culture. Are you familiar with the term cancel culture? Well, uh, if here's what it is. You have to be careful about being canceled. If you have said or tweeted or posted or written anything in your whole life that by today's standards is racist, sexist, homophobic, or transphobic, you could be canceled. By that, um, no one should buy your books, no one should read your articles, no one should honor you, no one should listen to you, no one should follow you on social media. You need to be erased from history and time. You need to be canceled. Uh, Martina Navratilova, do you know the name Martina Navratilova? She was a tennis star. She's a retired tennis player, a great athlete, and uh, she is a feminist, and uh, she has been getting criticism and the threat of being canceled because she doesn't think that transgender women should play professional sports against cisgender women. So that's not transphobic, uh, that's uh, not transgender friendly. She must be canceled. The problem with, one of the problems with cancel culture is that in cancel culture, there's no room for mercy, no room for grace, no room for forgiveness of any kind. These are the cultural winds in which we live, so we have to be clear about what the text show you this morning. Two things from Matthew 7, 1 through 6. We're going to talk, first of all, about what judging means. When Jesus says, do not judge, what's he talking about? What does he have in mind? What's the command? And then secondly, we're going to talk about why judging, why the type of judging that Jesus commands, uh, forbids here, fails. Uh, what's wrong with it? The text is not that hard to, 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 to take apart. We have the command from Jesus, and then he gives us reasons why we're to obey or to follow uh, the command. So let's begin by talking about what judging means. The word judging in this context, uh, the English word judge, our English word judge, and, and the Greek word underlying it, uh, the, the, this judge's translation of the original, both of those words in their languages are thick words. That is, they do a lot of work. They, there's a broad range of meaning in them. This word judge could mean either, on the one hand, evaluate or analyze, or it could mean, on the other hand, to condemn or criticize. I want to show you from the scriptures that we are commanded to do the first one and we're forbidden to do the second one. So when Jesus says, do not judge, he doesn't mean that you should stop thinking. He doesn't mean that you should hold no opinions. He is after a particular form of judging that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But first, I want to do show you from the Bible that we are commanded to do this evaluation, this analyzing work. And I just want to run through a few passages. The first one is in the Sermon on the Mount itself. A few verses later, in Matthew 7, 15, and 16, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. There are people, Jesus said, who are going to come in my name. Do not listen to them. Evaluate their messages. Look at what happens from their teaching and don't listen to them. There's a form of judgment there. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about a particular case of immorality among one of the members of the congregation. And Paul was telling them to excommunicate that member of the church. And look what he says. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's an act of judicial discipline the church is supposed to take. The Apostle John talked about false teachers in 1 John 4.1. He said, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test, evaluate, analyze. And then, last, John 7, 24, Jesus himself again said, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So in John 7, Jesus says, judge correctly. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't judge. He's talking about two different types of judging. One is the evaluation. One is the criticism, the, the, the critical spirit. In this vein, we could look at what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 6. I read it a, f- a few minutes ago. At the end of this speck and uh, plank passage, Jesus has this puzzling line about dogs and pigs. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Uh, Kermit the Frog's pig had pearls. Miss Piggy, right? Hmm. What's he talking about here? This is a puzzling passage. I think verse 6 is the counterpoint to verse 1. Verse 1, do not judge, but verse 6, that doesn't mean that you're you're to uh, uh, forego discernment of all kinds. In fact, verse 6 is a passage about being discernment. Jesus compares certain people to dogs and pigs. Now, not the dogs that you're thinking of, not those cute, adorable, fluffy puppies that you have at your house. That's not the type of dog he has in mind. The dogs in Jesus' day were not pets. They were scavengers. Think about hyenas. They traveled and pet from them. And the pigs were not much better. Pigs to the Jews, of course, would be unclean animals. And the pigs in Palestine were descendants of European boars. And European boars are... There are people... They'll categorically reject the good news about Jesus. And they'll do it in a way that is vicious and violent... And Jesus says, if you meet them, move on. You're just aggravating them. You're, you're, you're continuing to tell them the good news about Jesus, and it's just making them angry and violent. Move on and find someone else who will listen, because there are people who want to hear and will listen to you. Move on from the vicious, violent people to the people who are interested in hearing. Now, that's a difficult passage to apply Because many people who are followers of Jesus today will say, before I heard the good news about Jesus, or the first time I heard it, I didn't like it and I didn't want to listen. So there's hostile people out there. Before I heard the good news about Jesus, or the first time I heard it, I didn't like it and I didn't want to listen. So there's hostile people out there. But Jesus is talking about a particular case. You should have discernment to move on. Here's an example from uh, the life of of Paul in the book of Acts, Acts 18.5. 
When Saul, uh, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Macedonia is modern-day Greece, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Um, uh, he's in Corinth. When they came and joined him in Corinth, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's quite the benediction, isn't it, right? Go in grace and peace. Your blood's on your own head. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This is an opportunity when Paul is preaching the gospel, and like vicious dogs or rabid pigs, the crowd turns on him in the synagogue, and he says, that's it. I'm going to go find more fruitful fields elsewhere. And he goes next door, and here's these people who become followers of Jesus. Don't judge, but don't stop discerning, too. Um, actually, Paul's maybe doing what uh, Proverbs advises, Proverbs 9, 8. Do not rebuke mockers, or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Evaluate, analyze, but don't judge. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the focus, I think, that Jesus is after here is on the second use of the word judge, on condemning or criticizing. It's... Um, the focus here is having a critical spirit, being judgmental, having a mindset that is constantly criticizing and, and belittling other people, tearing them down in your mind as you think about them, their weaknesses. It's hard to improve on what John Stott said about them. John R. W. Stott was a, a British uh, theologian teacher. Anything he has written is worth reading. Uh, but look at this one paragraph, I'll read it to you. Uh, this is what John Stott said about being, uh, do not judge this passage here, being critical. The follower of Jesus, he said, is still a critic in the sense of using his powers of discernment, but not a judge in the sense of being censorious. Now, it's probably been a while since you used the word censorious, but censorious means a sharply critical. Censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. If you want to make a censorious cake, here's the recipe. Right? It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. Some of you maybe felt like, you probably didn't, but I bet you felt in school that you had a censorious teacher who liked to use his or her red pen, right? He just liked to find my mistakes. Stock continues. He, this censorious person, puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, their plans, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. Worse than that, to be censorious is to set oneself up as a censor and so to claim the competence and authority to sit in judgment upon one's fellow men. 
This is an easy mindset to fall into. It is easy to have a critical spirit. It's easy to assume the role of judge over someone. It's easy to think about what they should do and what they should look like and how they should change. Uh, it's, very, it's very easy, much easier rather, to find faults in people than to seek evidence of God's grace in their lives. Now, there's two important issues that are related to this definition of what being uh, the judging that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, two questions that I want to answer before I move on. Why do we like this judgmentalism so much? Jesus knew we would struggle with it, so he spoke to us about it. Why do we like it so much? Well, in short, it just feels good. It feels good. It elevates you. It improves your self-image. It assumes power and superiority over other people. This is the grown-up version of King of the Hill. I'm going to be on the top, and I'm going to push you all down. Uh, and it assumes this role of authority that, that you don't have, but we all like, we all like to be in charge. Um, Paul kind of mentions this in the same passage, in a similar passage where he uses the word judge in Romans 14.4. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Same word used the same way Jesus did in Matthew 7. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Or he uses it in the same, verse, uh, same word in verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. This judging is, is taking a position of authority that we, that we like. It's a role only that God has. Do you remember how the, what the Sermon on the Mount is in the book of Matthew 4? The Sermon on the Mount is in the book of Matthew in order to remind us of Jesus' authority. Who has the right to speak for God? Jesus has the right to speak for God. He's in, he has that authority. And it's in contrast to the teachers of the law and the religious leaders and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They claimed to speak for God, but no, no, no. Jesus has the right, the authority to speak for God. And, and, and one of the ways that, that this, shows, this passage shows Jesus' authority is by way of contrast. And the religious leaders loved to compare themselves with others. It's a hallmark of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This act of comparison. This, I will feel better about myself by comparing myself with other people. And this is what Jesus is warning against. Actually, he spoke about this again later in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, uh, verse 9. Jesus says this about a Pharisee. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. What an address. If you get a letter in your mail that says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, that's a bad sign. All right? It's not a valentine. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. The original actually says, the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. <laughs> that's an indictment. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. God, I thank you that I'm not as bad as other people are. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel important, powerful, 
righteous. D.A. Carson says, you can tell about the depth of our human sin and the fact that, again, we can take this beautiful life that Jesus is describing and use it, as we discovered a couple weeks ago, as a way to get the approval of people. And now we can use it as a way to look down on other people and, and, and show how much better we are than them, if nothing else, in our imagination. Yeah, this week I had to pick up my lawn. There was a, a storm, and it, it, it blew down a, a branch. It was about this tall, I suppose, and about this thick. And, and I was carrying it uh, back to my, um, uh, putting the, the, the pile, the brush pile in my, my garage. I was carrying it, and I thought to myself, you know, if I had a bad back or bad hips or bad knees, this would make a great cane. It's just about the right size and the right shape. And uh, it, it was wet, so it was a little wobbly, the, the stick was, but it, it would have worked. It occurred to me, though, I'm like, but this is, this is a terrible-looking cane. It's just an awful-looking cane. So if I was going to get a real cane, I, I want, like, a nice cane, right? You know, one that didn't have bark falling off and a little mold on it. I would like a cane that was, like, polished and, and maybe one that had, you know, like a silver top on it and a brass, brass in the bottom and ivory inlaid. Man, I, I, a little carving my face in the cane. It would just look so nice, right? I want a nice cane. And wouldn't people be jealous of my nice cane? How odd is that? This cane that is a symbol of my human fragility, my my bad back, my bad hips, my bad knees, this cane that, that is supposed to support my broken body is now something that I use to show how superior I am to the rest of you slubs with your terrible canes. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is a sign not just of our human fragility, but it's a sign of our human deadness. And and I am such a sinner that I can take it and turn it into a reason to be proud over you or superior over you or better than you, at least in my imagination. Now, the second question that I want to ask, then, I guess it leads to this, is how, how do you tell, how do you tell the difference, sorry, how do you tell the difference between condemning and evaluating how do you tell the difference between those two things so if i'm commanded to evaluate and forbidden to condemn how do i tell the difference Uh, it has to do with your attitude but i just want to mention three things first of all evaluation always includes you it always includes you so if i if i look at someone and i see wow that person has a temper a terrible temper yeah Next step, do I have that sort of temper? How would I respond in that same situation? Would I be as provoked that way? Or how, how would I respond in such a way? How could I respond if I was in that situation that wasn't so driven by anger? Evaluation always comes home back to you. Second, evaluation seeks to help others. Evaluation seeks to help others. The observations that you make are not there for you to feel good about yourself, but for you to think about other people and how you can help them. How can I, this person in the midst of this, help that person, encourage them? What burdens are they carrying that I can relieve? How can I model faithfulness for them? Look at Galatians 6.1. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. How can I help restore that person? Richard Needham was kind of talking about the opposite of this when he said this, The man who is brutally honest enjoys the brutality quite as much as the honesty possibly more. 
Be careful of that, of enjoying the brutality more than the honesty. Evaluation seeks to help other people, which kind of leads me to the third. Evaluation leads to prayer. Evaluation leads to prayer. In contrast, criticism leads to gossip. Evaluation sends me to my knees. Criticism sends me to Facebook. Criticism sends me to uh, talk to other people about what I've observed. And evaluation leads me to plead with God to have mercy in the life of the person who is hurting and hurting others that I have seen. We who are followers of Jesus have every reason to turn from this sort of condemnation that Jesus sets aside here. The reason we, have ever, we, we do this is because we have seen the Lord Jesus do this himself, and we have benefited from his, his work. Remember what he said in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, a few minutes ago, we talked about the judgment of God and how someday we are all going to be answerable to God. And the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus himself is going to be at the center of that judgment. He will carry out this judgment that his father has, has uh, uh, commanded him to do. That, though, is coming at the second, his second coming. At his first coming, he came not to condemn, but to rescue and redeem. And we who live between the first coming and the second coming, our call now is to call people to uh, respond to the mercy of God and find forgiveness and kindness and, and life in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, the bad news of the Bible is that you are a sinner and you will not measure up. You do not measure up to God's standards. You will have nothing to say in your own defense on that day when you stand before God. You won't be able to talk about what a good person you are. You won't be able to talk about how you always went to Sunday school. And you won't be able to talk about uh, uh, you, your rituals. You won't be able to talk about your good Christian parents. Uh, you'll have no answer for yourself. The only answer that there is is the fact that the Lord Jesus as an expression of God's great mercy, the Lord Jesus came and lived the life that you should have lived, and he died on the cross the death that you deserve to die. He died suffering in your place. He rose again and ascended into heaven, and he gives life and forgiveness to all who will turn to him and trust in him, receiving that forgiveness and life from him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, oh please, please turn to him and find life and forgiveness in his name. If you are a follower of Jesus, though, here this passage gives us an indication of how deeply you understand God's grace how deeply that connection has been made in your heart. You can tell how deeply that has connected by how you extend that grace to other people, how you think about them, your attitude toward other people. So when you see them in the hallway at school, or when you see them at work, or when you see them at the grocery store, what are you thinking about? Some of you have seen it. There's whole websites dedicated to showing pictures of people who go to Walmart and what they wear and what they do when they go to Walmart. And you know what that site is for? It's to give you the opportunity to laugh at all the lowlifes. And aren't you wise that you're not one of them? 
Now I say that, I feel very proud of myself that you're the lowlifes who are laughing at the lowlifes, right? Oh, condemned. What do you think? How, how deeply has the grace of God gone down into your heart so that you think about them? Not in the, so that your first thought, your first thought, oh, this takes work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Your first thought is not, look at what they're wearing. Look at how they're parenting their kids. Look at what they're buying. Look at how much that guy eats. That, not that, not that, but your first thought is, I wonder if that person is a friend of Jesus. I wonder if that person knows Jesus. I wonder if they found life and forgiveness in his name. Because I have, I have, the controlling reality of my life is the grace of God that I have received through the Lord Jesus. And I wonder if the people sitting next to you at school have. And I wonder if the people who work at your station at work have. I wonder if, if the guy who lives across the street has. That's one of the ways that you can tell how strong, how deeply the grace of God has embedded itself in your mind and heart by what you think about when you see other people. That's what judging is. Let's talk secondly here about why judging fails. Why judging fails. We'll pick up the pace here. Uh, Jesus gives two reasons why judging fails. The first one is it invites stricter judgment. It invites stricter judgment. Verse 2. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, I spoke a few minutes ago about uh, cancel culture. Cancel culture is toxic. It comes for everyone. The revolution eats its own. Jamel Hill is a journalist, and she has been one of the chief spokesmen for cancel culture, spokespersons uh, for cancel culture. And then uh, this summer, somebody uncovered an old uh, social media post that she had made making fun of a transgender woman. Oh, you know what, Jamel Hill, the cancel culture advocate, she's got to be canceled. Or... Um, we're having a lot of discussion in our culture right now about how we honor people, our founding fathers in particular, who were slave owners. A couple months ago, the mayor of Washington, D.C. convened a city council, a special study group. It was supposed to determine what the District of Columbia should do with its monuments and memorials to um, uh, people who were problematic in some way because they were slave owners or sexists or uh, racists or homophobes or something like that. And uh, the, this commission's report was released two weeks ago and it said that the District of Columbia should tear down the Washington Monument and remove the Jefferson Memorial. If they're on federal property, so that's unlikely to happen. But that's what they wanted to happen. They've got to be canceled. Then... <laughs> In the midst of this all, of course, there's a great discussion about the founder of Yale University. His name is Elihu Yale. His name was Elihu Yale. And Yale, like among many Ivy League schools, is kind of the heartbeat of cancel culture. Do you know how Elihu Yale made his money that helped fund and found Yale University? He did it in the slave trade. Oops. Take out down your Yale diploma. Needs to be canceled. Cancel culture is toxic. If you are this sort of critical person, you are cultivating this toxic culture. Be careful about how you speak about other people in front of your children. You are discipling them in being a critical person. 
Actually, this is, this is worse here. This passage, I think, is worse. Jesus is not just talking about other people judging you. He is talking about the judgment of God. He is echoing, I think, what he's already said in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Or he's doing the inside out of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Here it is. Uh, Cursed are the judgmental, for they will be judged. Now, God's standards, this invites stricter judgment from God. God's standards don't change. God's standards are better than your standards in evaluating people and judging people. But the question remains, do you want God to look at your life in the same way that you look at the lives of others? No. No, I want mercy from God. I want mercy from God. So will you extend that mercy to others? Uh, Jesus talks about the measuring here. Uh, The rabbis in Jesus' day believed that God had two measuring sticks. One was called mercy, one was called judgment. Which one do you want to line up against your life? Chuck Swindoll tells a story in his book, The Grace Awakening, about uh, a a conference that he was speaking at, a Bible conference. He was there for a whole week preaching, and there was a couple that came in to every session, and they sat down towards the back, and in every session where he started preaching, 10 minutes into his sermon, the guy fell asleep. Now, the first couple times, it kind of amused him. And then the second couple times it happened, it became a challenge. What do I have to say to keep this guy awake? And the last few times that he spoke, he just preached mad. He was just angry about this guy sleeping in the back while he's preaching away. At the end of the week, his, uh, this man's wife wanted to come and have a, a conversation with, with Chuck Swindoll. And he said, I, I knew exactly what she wanted to talk to me about. She wanted to talk to me about her uh, husband and how to live with a husband who has such little spiritual interest. She sat down with, with uh, Chuck Swindoll and she said, I really want to thank you for your teaching this week. It's been so helpful to us. See, my husband has terminal cancer, and the pain medicine that he's taking makes him really sleepy, and he has a really hard time staying awake. But his dying wish was to come and hear you preach at this conference. So we've been here, and he loves you. He loves Jesus. You're his favorite preacher, and he really wanted to be here to hear you speak. Swindoll said, that is as deeply rebuked as I have ever been. Be careful. Be careful the measure you use to judge other people. You invite stricter judgment in your life. Secondly, this sort of judgmentalism hinders you from helping others. It hinders you from helping others. There's this very well-known analogy Jesus uses about the beam in your eye or plank and the speck in, in your brother's eye. Uh, it's, it's intentionally ludicrous. It's in, we're so familiar with it. It's not as funny as it, as we don't, as it doesn't strike us with the humor that Jesus intended. This beam that Jesus uses, the word, one source I found, said that this beam refers to the beam that would up, uh, hold your house up and they could be 40 feet long and 5 feet wide. Here, let me take the speck out of your eye, right? I can find it, I'm sure. It's ludicrous. What's interesting, though, is Jesus does not say, ignore the speck 
and take care of the plank. Both of them have got to come out of the eyes. Both of them have, need to be addressed. But how are you going to help someone take out the speck? You need some humility and you need some self-knowledge. Here's a passage that shows us the folly of being ignorant of yourself and arrogant toward others. And it's a terrible combination. The goal here is clearer vision for everybody. Let's get rid of the speck and the plank, both of them. But this sort of judgmentalism hinders you from helping others. Jesus told us, didn't he not, in Matthew 5, that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what he said. How does salt remain salty? How does light shine brightly? It doesn't when it's fueled by the sort of humility that results in self-examination. The sort of humility and self-examination that are fueled by the grace that we have received from God and then that we extend to others. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. We're thankful to you that he told us the truth in this passage about ourselves. Lord, we need to hear these words and we confess to you that we are judgmental people. We confess to you our critical spirits that we are inclined to measure people according to uh, standards of authority that we do not have. And it is easy to condemn someone for how they parent or don't parent, or how they dress and uh, what, they, what they choose to wear and how they act in public and what they say. And uh, we condemn and belittle and exalt ourselves. And Lord, we confess to you our judgmental spirits. Lord, I pray that because of these words and because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would cultivate in our congregation, that we would be a congregation that is on the lookout for evidences of the grace of God, that we would not be, uh, that, that, that we would be people who are encouragers in our workplace, that, that in school we would not be the mockers or the insulters but that we, we would be there to speak words of encouragement and kindness and uh, that we would elevate others, those around us. Do this because we have received the grace of God already. Thank you that you forgive us through the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And, and now we pray that you would cultivate this in us as a people, as your people. We ask this because we want to glorify the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name together, saying, Amen.